Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. There's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA, and that is here. This episode is going to be dedicated to Game 4 of the Western Conference Finals, which the Denver Nuggets won to complete a sweep over LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers and earned the first NBA Finals appearance in Nuggets franchise history. It also marked the first postseason sweep by a Nuggets team. I find it necessary to break down exactly what happened in that game because of the reaction to some comments I made when discussing it on TV, clips of which were dispersed through social media. Comments made by me about LeBron James and what being swept meant specifically. I'm also going to dissect what we should take away from his post-game remarks that indicated he's at least contemplating retirement. Those of my listeners who take exception to the conversation being so much about LeBron and his future with the Lakers and not about the Denver Nuggets, I feel you. Please keep in mind that I just did an entire episode on Nikola Jokic, their two-time MVP center, and I dare say you weren't finding that anyplace else at the time that I did it. And I am going to discuss a few things about the Nuggets and their victory as well. It's just not going to be the first or second thing that I address. So let's start with the remark I made that prompted a considerable amount of reaction. And that was that the sweep was proof that LeBron is no longer a dominant game-changing player. Because if he was he would have been able to manufacture at least one win over Denver. A case could be made that he actually had three chances to do just that, but his missed shots and mistakes at the end of games one, two, and four prevented that from happening. Now, I didn't bother counting all the likes, the clip of me saying that and explaining why I felt that way received, and compared them to all the outraged responses who couldn't believe I had the audacity to suggest someone who had 
40 points, 10 rebounds, and 9 assists, was no longer a dominant game-changing player, those being the numbers that LeBron put up in Game 4. But I'm pretty sure there were far more likes than responses questioning my sanity or simply being dumbfounded that anyone putting up those kind of numbers in a game would be viewed as no longer a game-changer. That more people understand why I said what I said is actually comforting. For the dumbfounded, let me break it down for you. If you believe all the talk about LeBron James' basketball IQ, which, for the most part, I do, then you have to know that LeBron did not play Game 4, first and foremost, to win it. He played it to try and make sure that he wouldn't be blamed if the Lakers lost. The hallmark of how LeBron approached these playoffs is that he would generally start slow, allowing Anthony Davis and D'Angelo Russell and Austin Reeves and the rest of the team to get shots and find their offensive rhythm. And that strategy worked well enough in the first two rounds to get them further than anyone outside of Lakers fans and LeBron fans ever expected them to get. In fact, it worked pretty damn well through the first three games of the series against the Nuggets. I have to believe it was because LeBron knew in order for the Lakers to have a chance to win, he had to conserve some of his energy for the fourth quarter in, able, in order to be able to close the game if necessary. And that he needed to expend his energy on playmaking more than just scoring on his own. The numbers during the regular season backed up that logic. I'm blanking on the bench, benchmark, but I had our researchers look it up. And... When LeBron scored less and Austin Reeves scored more, the Lakers' record was well over 500 during the regular season. And in the reverse, they had a losing record. When LeBron took 15 or more shots, I forget what the exact benchmark was. In Game 3 against the Warriors, a lopsided win for the Lakers, LeBron didn't take a single shot in the first quarter and only five in the first half. In Game 2 against the Nuggets, he took only one first quarter shot, nine in the first half, and the Lakers held a five-point lead into the second quarter. So the idea that LeBron had to score and had to score early in order for the Lakers to get out to a good start simply doesn't bear out when you look at the results. Now, in both of those games, he took at least a three-minute breather or more in the first half. The one game in the Lakers' first two series that he came out looking to score himself aggressively, taking eight first quarter shots and scoring 21 in the first half, the Warriors built an 11-point halftime lead and won in a rout. LeBron finished with 23, scoring only two points in the second half. So he already knew that in games where he tried to come out and get it early, he didn't have enough to finish. The point being, letting everyone cook first was very effective throughout the playoffs for LeBron and the Lakers, and the opposite approach was not. So why, in God's name, would he come out blazing in Game 4 a must-win to extend their season? Why would he take nine first-quarter shots, the most he'd taken in any playoff game this year? And those shots didn't come easy. He was posting up and having to work his way to the hoop. 
Why would he take the most first-half shots of any game this postseason? 13. And why, with the Lakers building a 15-point lead, would he not rest more than the last four seconds of the first half? Why, with the Lakers still holding a 10-point lead three and a half minutes into the second half, wouldn't he take a break? Why, in the fourth quarter, would he only then take one shot at the rim, missing the other five from six feet out or more? Unless, of course, saying that he never left the floor and the stats a player dominating the ball could collect by staying on the floor would distract casuals from the fact that he wasn't a factor when it came to the outcome. It would divert the blame to his teammates, who didn't play as many minutes and didn't take as many shots and didn't have the ball as much. He dominated the ball in Game 4 more than any of the previous three games. He and AD were virtually equals in Games 2 and 3, and Game 1, AD actually had the ball more than LeBron. Does any of that sound like a winning formula for a 38-year-old in Game 4 who already had trouble sustaining his energy from start to finish? Maybe it was a winning formula for the 38-year-old who figured, let me score as much as I can while I'm fresh, and then, no matter what happens, all the fans who judge performances by box scores will point to my numbers and say, wow, if only LeBron had had some help. Isn't it amazing that he could score 40? He almost had a triple-double. Isn't it a shame no one else stepped up? Well, I suppose you could say, well, he got it in the first half. Why didn't anybody step up in the second half? Well, LeBron being a factor, rather than what he was in the second half, which was pointed out plenty of times by the broadcast, he was just standing around. He wasn't a factor in the second half in any way, beyond not shooting and scoring. And besides, if you're one of those fans, who did you expect to step up in the fourth quarter? Who should have been the closer, if not LeBron? Who would you want with the ball in his hands at the end of the game? LeBron missed five of his six shots in the fourth quarter of Game 4, including two after Jokic trundled his way past AD and over Dennis Schroeder for what would prove to be the game-winning layup. Do you understand how self-serving LeBron's approach to Game 4 was? It was the same approach he had early on this season as he chased the scoring record, and all of last season, when he decided he'd rather try to win the scoring title, a special feather in his cap to do so at 37, only having done it once before, than attempt to win games and possibly sneak into the playoffs. And I have no problem with him doing that. I have a problem with him and his supporters not acknowledging that that's exactly what he was doing. I have to laugh when I read comments like, Buker doesn't know the game because, what, I don't take a box score or statistics or any number at face value, and I actually dissect what those numbers mean within the context of the game? And for anyone who thinks I only do this with LeBron, you don't know my work. You are, in essence, what you've accused me of being, a flat-out hater. Because you're labeling me a certain way without actually doing any research or investigation. I've been calling out hollow stats since Elton Brand became an all-star. 
and Kevin Love was being touted a top 10 player in the league, and Anthony Davis was in New Orleans being called one of the top three players in the league. I have never voted for Nikola Jokic as MVP for a season because of how and when he collected his numbers. When a game gets down to the final minutes and a great player is setting screens and looking to find someone else to shoot the ball without attacking the rim or forcing the defense to overload, the numbers mean a little less in my eyes. The hardest thing to do is have the guts to say, I am going to decide this game. That is what Nikola Jokic didn't do enough during the regular season and what I saw him do in game four. I expect that from a player with the size and skill to do it. I gave Joel Embiid my vote this year because I saw him do that consistently this season, regular season. Doing it in the postseason is another level, another challenge. And for the most part, Embiid hasn't risen to that. Jokic has done it more than ever before in these playoffs, which is why the Nuggets are going to the finals. I still see him deferring at times. As I mentioned in the previous episode, I saw it in Game 4 more than I would have liked, but he did it when it mattered most to win the game. LeBron didn't defer. He just didn't have enough energy, game. Look up the Kwame Brown clip about Game 4 and about LeBron that Kwame recently put out. He didn't have what it took to get the job done. He took two shots to tie the score. Now, I credit him for taking them, but neither one had much of a chance. He missed both badly, the second barely getting out of his hand before Aaron Gordon swatted it. The first was an off-balance mid-range jumper. They were on par, those two shots, with the three-pointer he took and missed in Game 1 with 45 seconds left and the Lakers trailing by three. He had been punishing the Nuggets in the fourth quarter by posting up and getting to the paint and either scoring, getting fouled, or kicking it out to an open shooter. This is the game in which AD overall had the ball in his hands more. I didn't look up to see what the fourth quarter balance was. But I would dare say that LeBron saved more for that fourth quarter and had been more effective as a result than in any of the subsequent games, and certainly in game four. Darvin Ham said it all series. Good things happen when we get the ball and two feet in the paint. Yet LeBron decided to hoist a pull-up 27-footer in Game 1. In Game 2, he smoked a reverse layup that would have cut the Nuggets' lead from 4 to 2 with 26 seconds left, meaning the Lakers would have still had a chance to win or force OT with a stop and a score. Instead, Reeves had to commit a take foul after the missed layup. Jamal Murray made two free throws, and the game was essentially over. This is what I mean when I say he's no longer a dominant, game-changing player. And if you want to disagree with what I'm saying, have at it. But don't bring some stupid reasoning like, I just don't like LeBron or I hold him to a different standard. No, the problem I see LeBron fans having is that I hold him to the same standard as everyone else. I don't give him compensation for being 38. I acknowledge it, but I don't give him extra credit for it. I don't give him compensation for overcoming his rough childhood. I acknowledge it and I admire it. But I'm not going to say that he's doing more 
because of that. I don't give him compensation because he built a school. David Robinson built 20-some. Or never has been in trouble with the law. Or is not an absentee father. And I don't judge his performance based solely on statistics. Which is the only way anyone can pretend that his performance in Game 4 didn't come up short. That it wasn't dominant. That it didn't change the game. If he still had that capability, surely he would have won one of those four games. Surely he didn't want to get swept. Surely, if he is still a dominant game-changing player, he could have won one of those close competitive games. Unless you define a dominant game-changing player as someone who just scores a lot, or rebounds a lot, or has a lot of assists, or has a lot of all of those, and that's all that matters. In that case, Kevin Love was a dominant game-changing player in 2014, when he averaged 26 points, 12.5 rebounds, and 4.5 assists on a T-Wolves team with a losing record that didn't make the playoffs. Russell Westbrook was a dominant player for the Washington Wizards because he averaged 22 points, 11 rebounds, and 11 assists on a 34-38 and 38 team that was the 8th seed and got knocked out in short order five games by the 76ers. If good to great stats are the criteria... There are about 50 dominant players in the league at any point. One out of every eight players in the league is dominant then and can change the game. DeMontis Sabonis, dominant game changer. Pascal Siakam, dominant game changer. LaMelo Ball, dominant game changer. And maybe some of you are thinking, yeah, they are. In which case, we just have a different definition of what a dominant game changer is. Which, for me, is... Can you win a game that needs to be won? I don't care how you do it. I don't care what number of points or rebounds or assists or blocks or whatever number you want to pick. I don't care how many it takes in a particular category. Can you do what it takes to win the game? Save me the, if only he had more help, bull. The Lakers supporting cast moved from 12th to 9th without LeBron during the regular season. They, for those who say that they would have never made the play-in without him, okay, I, I kind of agree. But the fact of the matter is, they put themselves in position with him out with injury. They won two playoff games when the opponent outscored the Lakers while he was on the floor. They won when he had as many turnovers as assists. As for the innuendo after the game about possibly retiring, I'm going to give him a pass on that. I'm not going to kill him for that. Some people have, I'm not. I wish he hadn't done it because it made him the number one topic when it should have been the Nuggets. And I can't help but believe that on some level he knew that. But I'm not going to subscribe to the idea that the reason he floated it out there is because he wanted to distract us all from the fact that he just got swept by a team with one bonafide star that has never won a conference title nor swept a team in its franchise's history. That he wanted to distract us from the fact that Jokic and Jamal Murray dominated AD and LeBron. I'm giving him a pass because I think he saw his basketball mortality 
And that would give any of us reason to wonder if we would want to continue. He just got swept. He just got his shot attempt to force overtime swatted. He will be 39 years old before he even has a chance to see the playoffs again on a team that has a load of free agents and can't retain them all. If they keep Rui Hachimura and Austin Reeves, they're pretty much tapped financially. Now, do I suspect that the leverage of I don't know whether I want to play or not next year can benefit him as far as possibly getting Kyrie Irving if that's who he wants or keeping the players that he wants? I would think on some level that he would have input on that anyway. But Kyrie is an interesting subject because the Lakers have made it known, I don't think it's publicly, but through channels have made it known that they're not planning to go after Kyrie. And I can't help but think that LeBron might want that over, say, keeping D'Angelo Russell. But we, we shall see. In any case, acting as if he's not sure he wants to play next year can certainly increase his leverage in terms of influencing what the Lakers are going to do for next season. And conversely, if he wasn't putting that out there, then they might not feel the same way. They might just do what they did at the trade deadline, which is we're not going to listen to you anymore about getting Kyrie or making moves. We're going to do what we think is best for the team. But I'm still, I'm still giving him a pass. LeBron's playing in conference finals is no big deal for me. Lament the thing that he said. It's not a big deal for him if, about playing in conference finals, that he plays for something bigger than that. Now, that landed wrong for me. I subscribe to the Steph Curry philosophy, which is it's all about the journey, not the destination. The older you get, the more you realize that. It's experiencing life and still being in the game. You come, I've come to have a new appreciation for that. Because what LeBron is essentially saying is, if I can't win at all, then what's the point of playing? Well, I can think of plenty of reasons. To help bring along the next group of young players on your team, sharing your knowledge, basically giving back to the game. Helping those young players win games and experience situations that they might not otherwise. And still testing yourself to see exactly how far you can go and not ruling out that with a little luck, you might be able to go all the way. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Because even the most loaded teams, let's be real, they don't know at the start of the season if they're going to be standing at the end. Now, the one exception here, or one thought is, unless LeBron thinks there is such a chasm between the Lakers and winning a title that it's not even worth considering playing next season. And maybe that's it. 
Because if there's one thing that LeBron is good at, it's measuring his team and whether he has enough and measuring himself and what he needs in order to contend for a title. Maybe he's thinking that after being swept by a Denver team that has the bulk of its players in their prime coming back and he sees the Nuggets and the Kings and the Grizzlies, maybe he's thinking there's just too many young teams coming into their prime to believe that the Lakers have a realistic chance even if they stay whole from this season and the way things ended. I also don't get him suggesting that he doesn't have a reason to play for anything other than championships when he's also told us that playing with his son, Bronny, in the NBA is on his bucket list. He can't well pursue both winning a championship and playing with his son. Let's be clear, especially with the teams I mentioned in the West. It's not that those two things aren't potentially compatible. It's that one has to take priority. If it's playing with Bronny, then he's got to figure out which team can and will draft him and be able to sign him, LeBron. And let me warn you right now, doing that isn't going to be as popular as some people may try to lead you to believe. Because you're basically handing over your team for a year, disrupting all of your plans to satisfy a wish of LeBron for one year. What kind of a draw is that going to be? I think it could be a pretty good draw, at least initially. You could sell a lot of season tickets. I don't know if it's going to end up being the draw all season long, but that's a warehouse full of conflicting interests that you're inviting into your culture. And for what? LeBron will be 40 years old. It will probably be his last season. He's not bringing you a championship by himself at that point. Somebody floated the idea that the Cavaliers would go for that, and they'd trade all of their young pieces, Evan Mobley and whatnot, to make that happen. That, that would be insane. Because at this point, you can only hope that he's going to contribute to one. So you're going to wreck your franchise for one year for LeBron and Bronny? If you're a championship team, it's hard to also imagine Bronny getting any burn. And is that what LeBron wants? Just to be on the same roster? Or does he want to be on the floor with him? And what does that look like? You think the Lakers look vulnerable when D'Lo is on the floor defensively with LeBron? Russell is 6'4". Bronny is 6'2". And almost every rookie gets cooked his first year in the league. I couldn't find Bronny's wingspan, but it doesn't look exceptional. He's a very heady player from what I've seen at the high school level. What he's going to be in college remains to be seen. But it's not like you look at him physically and go, oh, he's going to be, he's going to be a special defender from day one if and when he gets to the league. So with all that, I don't expect that LeBron is going to retire. I don't even see him taking off a year and saving himself to play with Bronny the following year. It's a possibility, and I could see the wisdom in it, but he's never shown an appetite for the spotlight not being on him, and we've been talking about a whole season. Even when he's not playing, he has found a way to draw attention to himself, and I just can't see him finding ways to do that for seven months. But 
Maybe I'm underestimating where he is physically, how much he thinks he needs a year off. Maybe going to Bronny's USC games would be enough. He'd certainly get a, a lot of attention at those games, no doubt. And I certainly think LeBron would get a lot of joy out of that. As someone who has gone through this, if he has the wherewithal to do it, I would highly recommend it. Take a year off. See every minute of every game, especially if Bronny's only going to spend one year in college. But here's the harsh reality. The NBA is going to go on without LeBron James. It's doing so right now in deciding the 2023 champion. And I can't help but feel like what we're hearing about how awful a Miami Heat-Denver Nuggets finals is going to be is just resentment over the fact uh, and resentment from Celtics and Lakers fans over the fact that their teams didn't make it. The, the reality is, again, that the NBA has gone, out with, gone on without LeBron three years in a row now as far as deciding who is going to be the champion. And I don't see that changing. That is his new reality. And I understand why it might take a beat to come to terms with that. It's hard to imagine that the Lakers are going to be anything more than what they were coming into this season. A team in the mix to make the playoffs and maybe win a round or two. Certainly not a team among the top two or three favored to win at all. As I said, retaining all the talent that contributed to their 17-7 and finish to make the play-in is going to be a challenge. There's a good chance a team outbids them for Austin Reeves or forces them to spend so much money on him that you can forget about adding pieces anytime in the next year or two. Lonnie Walker, D'Lo, Troy Brown, and Dennis Schroeder are all unrestricted free agents. Reeves and Hachimura, Hachimura are restricted, but Hachimura qualifying offer is more than $18 million already. They have $123 million in committed salaries for next season already. That doesn't include paying Reeves what he will be worth. D'Lo isn't expecting to make less than the $31 million he made this year. Reeves is expected to get an offer in the range of $20 million per. Hachimura will make at least that as well. That means signing Walker, Brown, and Schroeder to minimum contracts. Mobamba is signed through next season, so he could be the answer for the added size the Lakers need. But the jury remains out whether Bamba can make the grade as an NBA player. He's played one full season, averaging 10 points and 8 rebounds on a 22-win Orlando team. That was his best showing so far. Does that mean that he's going to be a rotation player or a starter for the Lakers on a team making the playoffs? That's a stretch. And I don't really care what LeBron does at this stage. He has earned the right to ride it out as he sees fit. I'd like to see him stick around. But for me, his legacy is cemented. This year was bonus action, but it doesn't really move the needle when it comes to my opinion of him. He has had far greater highs and far greater lows. What impressed me most is that he was able to play off the ball more than I've ever seen him. Able and willing. 
Now, I will be interested to find out what he decides to do, but I'm more interested in seeing what Jokic and Jamal Murray and Aaron Gordon and Michael Porter Jr. do the next few weeks, how they react to the unique atmosphere of the finals, if Jokic can earn the stamp that many thought he needed to validate his two MVP trophies. That's what is. Whether we like it or not, LeBron is what was. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And in the next episode, most likely we'll be talking about the Boston Celtics and the Miami Heat because as I record this, we're still waiting for that series to be decided. So I would expect that's what we're going to talk about in the next podcast, but don't hold me to it. As I said many, many episodes ago, I'm no longer making promises that I can't keep. So that is a tenuous one at best. But in the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.